Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining us. On this episode, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Anne Porteous. Now, Anne has an impressive background. She is a BSCN program professor in nursing and has spent over 40 years in nursing in a variety of different capacities, departments, and all kinds of different fashions of caregiving along the way. And in 2015, Anne became a certified coach and began offering a premier equestrian assisted leadership coaching. So she's working with first responders and peoples of all different walks of life using these amazing animals and her experience over 40 years of experience as a nurse to help people get over different transitions and hurdles in their life. So in this episode, I had a great conversation with Anne. She shared with us her wealth of knowledge and she also gives us some insight into the world of nursing. I had a fantastic time making this connection with Anne. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and good morning, Anne. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's really my pleasure to be here this morning, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, you and I had a bit of a, a preliminary talk, which was the first time that we had met. And I've heard all kinds of great things uh, about you through some of your nursing students. And um, yeah, I got a chance to look at your website and see what you were doing. And as soon as I did, I knew, yes, this is meant to be. We're going to have you on this podcast and we're going to have a good time. But for people who are logging on, listening and know nothing about you, uh, said a little bit in the bio, but you've you've had quite a bit of experience helping people throughout all kinds of different modalities and everything over the years. But it all started with nursing. So I'm I'm wondering where did that initial passion? When did you know that you wanted to get into the, the I, I won't even call it career, but lifetime of helping people? I think there are uh, a couple of, of prominent uh, moments in, in my time. Um, I, I mean, to me, I've always wanted, I had always wanted to be a nurse, um, but I remember being actually on a trip to England by ship and I unfortunately uh, came down with measles and I had to be quarantined. And I, to this day, can still remember the nurse who came to take care of me. And, and uh, I can remember, I mean, this is going back a long time, but she had on the blue cape with the red lining. And I thought there was just something about that interaction that I thought, wow, you know, this is pretty cool that she's taking care of me. And then, uh, and, and I, I, I think pretty much from that day forward, I wanted to care for people, take take good care of people. And then um, in my early teens, my father actually took ill and succumbed to cancer. And during that time, I definitely knew that caring for others is, was going to be my lot in life and, um, and just move continually forward right through high school to, to getting to, to nursing school. And I'm, um, 
I'm from the generation where I, I decided I didn't want to go to university at that time. So I took the, a lot of people don't know now that a number of the hospitals had their own um, nursing school. Mm. So I, I'm actually a diploma grad from the, um, from the Hamilton Civic Hospitals. And, um, and after I finished that education, I said, great, I'm going to travel and off I go, <laughs> which I did. And, um, and then some years later, I went back to school and, and got my, my bachelor's and then my master's of science as well. So it's been a, a long, um, long, and, and I'd have to say times of love-hate relationship with it. Mm. Uh, depending on a lot of things such as who's the political power mm. um, but overall obviously to have um, to have been at this for 46 years yeah the passion outweighed anything else yeah for sure and that's such a powerful image too to think of this nurse coming in wearing a cape because this is like such a superhero mentality and there you are in a situation where obviously not feeling well and being on this journey to uh, the UK at the time. And then here comes this superhero essentially to take care of you. And the psychological side of that and like you wanting to step into that role is really fascinating, but we won't, we won't psychoanalyze you in, in this interview, <laughs> but uh, it's Thank really, you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> but it is really fascinating to think of how that carries forward. And then everything that you said that um, happened with your father and then at that point, knowing that you wanted to kind of move forward. So at that time, when you started into nursing, because I know that it looks a little bit different for every nurse and everything, but when someone gets into nursing right off the get-go, like, what does that look like? What kind of roles are you taking on? In what capacity are you helping people, like in the early stages there? Is it something that you're um, I don't, or do they throw you in the deep end? <laughs> Well, I can remember many expressions such as you got to hit the ground running, um, even back then. But I mean, in some ways, this hasn't changed too much. Um, a lot of nurses will still start on a on a med surge type unit. Mm. Um, so bedside care with med surge type patients. Um, and then after a period of time, and that kind of uh, depends on the person and opportunity. But then they might move to areas that are um, uh, more like ICU, more of the acute care type environments. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some students uh, today, and certainly in when I started, sort of bypassed hospitals altogether and went into clinics. Mm. Um, so it's not always bedside nursing, but certainly more, let's say the hands-on type of uh, nursing care is where, where we would normally start. Now, there's a lot of things that, you know, as a nurse, you may come across with everything from people's personality types to all kinds of different disorders and all this kind of stuff. Do you feel like the education system can prepare someone for what they're going to experience once they're right in the thick of things with patients? Wow, that's a, that's a great question, Jason. Um, to a point. I think to a point, I mean, certainly the curriculum, um, you know, I, I taught for the last 20 years and certainly the curriculum would lead itself to an introduction at least to the different 
diseases for sure, uh, personality types, yeah. Um, but it isn't until they really get in the uh, in their like I'm thinking about their clinical practice, you know, where the students I would take a group of students um, into the hospital, and for some of them it was their first time ever being in a hospital, mm-hmm. and so I mean it, this was huge learning for them because people, as you say, everyone's different and every student's different or every nurse is different too. So, I mean, you know, there, it's all about that relationship that has to develop. Um, and so for, yeah, for the younger ones, sometimes it, it can be a bit overwhelming, I would say. And for those that are listening that may not have insight on this, you were not only just nursing, but you also decided to kind of give back in the teaching capacity as well. So mm-hmm. how long after getting into nursing and practicing after your travels and everything, did you decide, I want to, I want to move forward and help with the educational side of this? Um, boy, I'd have to do the math. But for the last 20 years anyways, was when I, I, I mean, when I looked at the various positions that I held over my career, the thing that I was always very passionate about and very drawn to were, was any aspect of teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to in 2000 uh, to really focus more on getting into the teaching role. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of take on that position, is it, it, does it give the opportunity for you to really not only just share again, like that clinical side of things, but also with students kind of like, look, this is what you're signing up for. Cause I remember I went to school for architecture, which is very different than what I'm doing now. Right. And I know for me in my schooling, it was really talked up to be this like glamorous profession and people will throw rose petals at your feet as you're, you know, entering a building <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was quite the shock to really see that, you know, for the first, uh, well, for my internship, all I did was folded drawings and then I was getting coffees for a period of time. And then, you know, eventually I started designing and doing stuff like that, but um, I felt there was a, a pretty big gap there. So how much of uh, that were you able to kind of carry through? And were there any messages that you really wanted to try to get across to new students who were getting into this line of work? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, sorry. <laughs> I'm just throwing all these tough ones at you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's okay. Um, you know, for, for an educator, I think it's a very tough line that we walk sometimes because, I mean, we certainly want to give them reality, mm-hmm. but we also don't want to overwhelm them. Uh, I'm talking about students, obviously, and, you know, make them think that this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's quite a fine line that, that we draw there, but I think... Um, you know, the, the one thing that you've, you're getting me to think about here is that often students themselves know that maybe this isn't the, the best choice for them. And I mean, they, they have pressures behind them. Like sometimes it's, uh, you know, parents, mm-hmm. um, whatever the pressure is to, this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I think um, in my experience, those students really can struggle because it's, it's just, this isn't easy work. Mm-hmm. It isn't easy work taking care of people who are virtually at their worst. Right. And, um, 
so I mean, there there has to be somewhat of that reality with them. But there, there's a balance because, I mean, as I said at the very beginning, um, it, it can be a love-hate relationship at times, mm. but hopefully the love outweighs any of the, the challenges that we have. And we will have challenges. I mean, that's the given. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about separately on our conversation um, when you were kind of describing the process and the mind state and all this, uh, and I, I shared the story of uh, my flight attendant friends and how I see almost like a similarity with flight attendants, no matter what's going on with the plane, if you're getting turbulence and people are getting scared, like your role is to stay calm. Never mind the fact that you're human too, and you might be dealing with your own stressors, whether that be from your home life or other situations in your life. But when you enter into your role as a nurse, you're, you're putting on that cape, whether it's literal or metaphorical on that occasion, and it's okay, well, I'm here for the patient right now. My role is here for the patient right now, and I need to show up to that capacity. But again, that's, that's asking a lot, depending on what you may be going through at your life. And I can only imagine relating it to other professions, but there's going to be times where you're probably understaffed and being asked to work you know, more shifts than you normally should have because people are on vacation and so on and so forth. But when people's lives or uh, sanity is on the line, you can't let that kind of stuff really trickle through. So, you know, are there coping mechanisms? Like I know eventually we'll get into it. You kind of got into mindfulness and realized that you've been practicing mindfulness, but how do people kind of make that switch or how did that work for you to speak on from your perspective? Like what was your ability to kind of switch into that role? Yeah, it, it, it's not easy. And, and I, I remember uh, we discussed too, like the, the comment, you know, leave it at the door and you've got to bring your A game. Yeah, I understand that. Mm. Um, but it's not always possible. And it's not. Um, and it may not be possible for a whole shift. But I think we we do have to do our best for sure. And um, I think that both, uh, you know, sometimes patients um, see us as nurses, of course, but I don't know that they always see us as a nurse with a life. Mm -hmm outside of nursing and so yes uh, you know they're going to have maybe someone's off and I'm not saying it's it's good but I'm I, again I think it's reality and I think it's up to the nurses to know when whatever maybe is going on in their world is interfering then with patient care mm -hmm. and um, I think the nurses as a as a group you know, I mean, typically we're working in some format of a team that they need to be able to have honest conversations with each other. Mm -hmm. And hey, uh, you know, if you were one of my nurses, like, hey, Jason, you know, like you seem a bit off today. What's up? Mm -hmm. um, and often, you know, I don't know that we tend to do that, but, mm -hmm. but certainly, um, I mean, I've had it done to me, like, what's, what's up with you today? or, you know, I've done it with other nurses, but just asking that question sometimes is enough just to let them even vent a bit. Mm -hmm. Or as you mentioned, I mean, there, there's a, you know, there's always, always, I don't remember a time when there wasn't an issue with um, the workload. I really don't. Um, but 
you know, at some point there, there needs to be a time, even if it's for five minutes to sit down or go for a quick walk, run up. I tell students like go and run up the stairs or whatever you want to do, um, even for that five minutes and get a different mindset is, is helpful. And that's a good but, point because we had talked about when we first met about putting an episode together, we both agreed that we weren't going to focus on just nursing within the COVID-19 pandemic because correct. you had said like stress has always been there. You, what's the, you've been nursing for, what is it, 40? Yeah, let, let's leave it at that, 40 plus. <laughs> okay, that's fine. We won't date anybody here. But 40 plus years. And yeah, there's always been times, like you say, with workload and all this kind of stuff. And, and understandably, when there's situations like COVID going on now, and I'm sure it was the same when SARS came about and so on and so forth, everything gets amplified, not only from the perspective of patient load, but again, also like your personal stressors that you're having to deal with working into, you know, the work that you're doing on a daily basis and all this kind of stuff. Um, one of the other questions that just came to mind when you were talking about dealing with these kinds of things and some of these human traits that we're bringing in, because as we said, you know, you're dealing with people sometimes at their worst. And when we feel this is a natural human trait, when we feel like we are uh, in that threatened point, our existence is threatened, our health is threatened in any way, shape or form, we go into that fight, flight, freeze response. And we're not going to be looking at the person across us, even if they're trying to help us as an ally. Oftentimes it's no, you're part of the problem too. So there's a lot of lashing out and all this kind of stuff. But with people I've spoken to, because I've done some volunteer work um, with some organizations and affiliation to Sick Kids Hospital and stuff like that. And I've had even just through um, nursing patients of mine through my coaching, share with me certain coping mechanisms that they've developed depending on, which is really interesting, but depending on what like ward they're working in or what division of nursing they're working in. And I've heard everything from um, one nurse that I knew worked in sick kids on the uh, cardiac ward. And she talked about, well, for my mentality, I don't know what it is, but being able to tell myself, well, majority of these kids were born with this actually makes it easier for me to create that emotional disconnect. Otherwise, you know, in the beginning, it was really hard for me to see these kids going through what they're going through, but something about, okay, well, they were born with this. I'm just trying to improve their quality of life versus talking to nurses in palliative care. I've heard people say, well, you know, and my, my means of kind of like coping is telling myself, you know, most of these people have lived for quite some time. And from the stories that they've shared with me, a lot of them have lived amazing life. So my job is to just try to make them as comfortable as possible on their way out. And do you find like, even for yourself, that was an important thing to do to just kind of like keep that emotional disconnect? Because, you know, you said you looked up the definition of burnout and it's been around for quite some time. And so is this idea of like empathy fatigue and compassion fatigue and stuff like that. So what was your battles with uh, that throughout the years? I think the, you know, a lot of the learning that, that I've carried with me over the years has been um, um, not only from, from colleagues in the healthcare profession, but also from patients themselves. And just in listening to you there, I was reminded of, um, I did quite a lot of work in palliative care 
And I always remember a patient saying to me, um, I maybe asked him a question, something like, what, what can I do for you? Or what do you need? Something like that. And he said, I need you to help me live until I die. Mm. And to him, that meant comfort measures, um, nothing, nothing extreme, just help me, you know, be the way I want to be. And until I transition into the next world. Um, and that's really stuck with me all these years is, is that, uh, you know, that's where we help. And I think, you know, for nurses, um, you know, some of them shy totally away from things like palliative care and, and, uh, and anywhere that, that there's going to be um, um, a lot of emotion attached. Like, for example, I was supervisor at, at the, uh, at a, the uh, uh, cancer center and one of my areas of responsibility was uh, the radiation department. And, and I mean, we had children coming in there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's pretty tough when you deal with, with young ones. Mm -hmm. And as the nurse shared with you, you do have to have an emotional detachment. And you have to try to get yourself in the mindset of, I'm going to do the best that I can, um, you know, and show up with, with 100% every day for this person. Mm -hmm. and do your best to do that and it's amazing you know even with with that um area it, you know i can still remember a young child who had to come every day for her uh, radiation treatments and she would wear a different colored hat every day mm -hmm. and she brought such joy to everyone i mean it was like she was helping us mm -hmm. the nurses and the healthcare team to help her like she took the pressure off of us almost. And, um, you know, I, th I think, I think sometimes we underestimate the patients, you know, that um, they, they can actually be a resource for us and, and a help. And um, sometimes I think we're just afraid to ask the right question. That's a really powerful message to get across. And, you know, so far <laughs> we've almost been focusing, focusing on like the doom and gloom of, of, of nursing. But, you know, again, like you say, I've spent some time um, with people as they're transitioning over. I've also, through my volunteer work, worked with kids who are battling cancer and some of them make it and some of them don't. And it's amazing, though, like you say, what you can get out of the situation. Like we both have talked in the past about mindfulness practice, sitting for me, sitting at someone's bedside as they're transitioning out of this life is one of the most mindful in the moment experiences. When we're talking about the, the very definition of mindfulness, being in the present moment, focusing and listening to the sound of their breath as they're inhaling and exhaling and the it I've uh, when my grandmother was transitioning I basically was in a state of meditation by her bedside for like a week straight and it was such a powerful experience now I know as a nurse you maybe don't get the uh, ability to be a week straight with one person necessarily depending I guess on what capacity you're working at but um, there's so much that we as caregivers sometimes can get out of it as well and even just from the the words of the young, like you talked about, I remember one kid uh, that I was working with and he said, you know, I feel so lucky. I said, that's amazing. Tell me about that. He's like, well, some of these other kids, you know, they've been in hospital for years. And this was like, uh, he was eight years old. He said, I've only really been in hospital for like the last two years. 
And, you know, from an outsider, again, if you don't have that uh, ability to stand back, create some space from your own emotions from it, you'd be like, oh, you poor child, you're, you've been in a hospital for the last two years, and you're only eight years old. But if you can stand back and listen to what he's saying, like this perspective that he's able to gain on that situation and say, you know, there's a lot of kids that have it worse than me. And I'm able to be here having fun, playing with you and the other counselors and everything. Like, I feel pretty lucky today. And at that moment, like looking at the port sticking out of his chest and all that, it all disappears. You don't see that anymore when you hear those words and you just see a beautiful child in front of you that just wants to play tag with you right now. And like, that's, that's like life lesson 101. So you already mentioned the the little girl with the hats and stuff like that. Are there any other moments throughout? Uh, and this is again, I'm, I'm asking you all the tough questions to tap into your memory. But any other moments that really stood out for you of like, these big ahas with some of these patients or big takeaways of, uh, of knowledge there. I just want to say to, to your story that you just shared, and thank you for sharing that. Um, a couple of key words that you mentioned was uh, that um, this person said, like, today, today, this, you know, and, and right now I have the opportunity to play. Mm. And to me, that's, that's so powerful, because I'm not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, who knows. Mm -hmm. So today I'm happy to be here. I feel lucky. I'm grateful. And, um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to comment on Good that. Um, I can remember, um, and to me, this is powerful because again, it's going back now, like almost 48 years. So now I'm almost really dating myself, <laughs> but I can remember, walking down a hallway so this is when i was a student mm. and i can remember walking down a hallway and i saw a man sitting on the side of his bed with the meal with his meal in front of him mm -hmm. and he was crying and i kept on walking a few steps past his room because i'm a student at this point mm -hmm. feel that i don't know anything and what the heck could I do for this person? And I backtracked and I went in and I just sat next to him and I, I maybe said something like, you know, what's wrong or whatever. And the doctor had uh, walked into the room minutes before I, I came across him and said, unfortunately, that his wife of numerous years had passed. Mm. and I thought oh my gosh what do I say mm -hmm. I didn't have to say anything I just sat and held his hand and that was a big lesson for me that you know we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to talk mm -hmm. and what we need to do is sometimes just be there like you were saying about meditating, you know, during your mom's illness, um, we don't always have to have an answer. We don't always have to do anything, but simply be with the person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few minutes of that sometimes is more powerful, more needed than all the time that you can spend with a patient or anyone for that matter. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
and again, you you're prompting all of these these memories in my mind too of people that I've worked with. And I was uh, working with one nurse for a period of time, and this individual had recently transitioned from doing palliative care work and was now moving into working into the the ER. And I remember a big component for them was not being able to have that time to connect. And we had a really, and you know, sometimes I'm sure as an educator yourself, you know, like there's moments where you're almost teaching where you're having your own aha moment as you're kind of talking about it. But I was talking to this individual and we said, okay, well, what, what can you control in those moments and what can you create in that limited amount of time? Because that's what this individual was saying is, you know, it just felt so robotic. Now I'm having to just walk in the room and I'm shoving an IV into somebody's arm and then I'm on to the next patient and I'm, you know, bouncing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm missing that connection. And what we were able to kind of talk about was that that mind state that they were in as well. So even while they're going into the room to put in an intravenous or to stick a needle into somebody, because they were so caught up in their thoughts thinking, oh, I wish I had more time with this person. I wish I had more time with this person. Instead of actually embracing these, even if it's a split second time that they did have with that person, now their thoughts are taking them even out of that moment. So we talked about, okay, so if you only have whatever it is, the one second that it takes for you to stick this into that person's arm. Can you be fully in the moment for that one second, make eye contact with them? You don't even necessarily need to say anything, but can you even just let a small smile come to your face as you're doing it? Because I feel like even you know patients that I've talked to and caregivers that I've talked to is they don't know how to navigate those short periods of interaction, because we feel like we need to have the right words to say, or we need, you know, but we are, there's so much communication going on non-verbally. And I'm excited. This is going to make a great segue eventually into the work with the horses that you do. Um, But being able to just embrace those tiny moments of connection that we can have as human beings. I absolutely agree, Jason. It's it's unfortunate that I, I think um, because of the pressure that we're under, we get we become very uh, task oriented, and we we just look at you know in this case like you're saying starting an IV. Um, but there's ways to do that so that instead of just being a human doing, you're a human being, mm-hmm. and that was something I learned just recently uh, from a actually a a horse related activity Mm. but um no i mean if you go in and i mean the eye contact is huge so many when i look at uh, patient satisfaction surveys you know so many patients say they don't feel listened to they don't feel heard Mm -hmm. um and i think that just taking those moments while you're there uh and and engage them as best you can the contact the touch means a lot too mm-hmm. for most people um you know but just uh, being respectful being kind and compassionate as you can even though it's it's maybe a nasty task to have to do but um um you know you can still do it with compassion and i think you know i mean i've always been a strong promoter a strong believer in the nursing there's the art and science of nursing mm. And there needs to be a balance. I mean, I've talked numerous times to people saying, you know, and I mean, I was an ICU nurse for a bunch of years and the, um, 
you know, we, we, we can get very focused on all the bells and whistles and things that are attached to people, but we cannot forget that there's a person underneath all that. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's more the art side of, of nursing. Yeah. And like you say, that balance, because yeah, you don't want someone who's going to come into the room when you feel like this is a serious situation and they're just like passing it off like it's nothing. But at the same time, if you're a patient and you're surrounded by people talking about you and not talking to you and speaking in language that maybe they just don't even understand, especially, you know, when we get into uh, older patients. And this was a big thing. I remember when we were doing the in-home palliative care with my grandmother, um, this was a really big thing where there was conversations happening around her, yet she was still cognitively aware of what was going on. And it was one of the nurses that said, well, instead of us talking about her, why don't we actually ask her and turn exactly. and like, okay, well, what do you, and you know, it's a bit of a process at that point too, but she was listening. You can tell that my grandmother, she was very aware of the situation. Um, it maybe took her a little bit more to verbalize what she was experiencing there. But uh, that was a huge, I was almost ready to like go and get my uh, death doula training done like right then and there it's like okay so there's also a part of this of bridging that gap that art of nursing that you're talking about and so much of it too in the palliative care i noticed was navigating some of those conversations that people that are very important that people maybe don't want to talk about or don't want to have and i saw some of these nurses that were coming in who were far more tactful than a lot of like social workers and psychologist friends that I know in doing this. And I remember sitting back in awe and like, okay, that's just experience coming through right there. And um, yeah, it was a really big eye opener questions. I would have never even thought of like um, if you were to get ill, would you want an antibiotic or something like that? And I'm like, Oh my goodness, we never even thought of this kind of stuff. And yet this individual was so tactfully addressing both my parents as well as my grandmother and navigating this conversation like that to me is that art that you're talking about how do you how do you get and not, and not every, <laughs> sorry not everyone can do it and as i've said to many nurses you know if this isn't in your wheelhouse if you want to use that word um find someone who can do it mm -hmm. because you know, we, we owe it to the patient and to the family. But if I could just share this story with you, um, you're bringing up a lot of memories for me as well. Hmm. When I first started nursing, I was working on a medical unit and um, I can still remember um, the patient's name, which of course I won't use, but I can remember her name and the room that she was in on this unit. Hmm. And um, as I recall, she was in her mid-20s. She had inoperable brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And she was a teacher. And one night, uh, I was e leaving for my evening shift, and I noticed that the lights were on in her room. And so I popped in to see if, if everything was OK. And she couldn't as she expressed to me she said you know i can't really talk to my parents about what's going on with me because it just gets them upset mm -hmm. and so i sat down and i said well talk to me and um uh, and again it's one of those stories that i'll never forget she said my you know i know i'm going to die what i'm afraid of 
is what if, and I can remember her saying these exact words, what if my brain is like a piece of bread and all the outside, the perimeter of the piece of bread is moldy, mm. but in the middle, there's something, there's still some fresh bread there. And what if my brain is like that and there, in the middle, I still know what's going on, but mm. I can't communicate it. Mm -hmm. And that was her biggest fear is that she wouldn't be able to, there she would get to a point and probably she would where she wouldn't be able to communicate and then what? And that was her biggest fear. And I never forgot that. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what, you know, patients, um, if they're not responding the way that we typically expect them to, it doesn't mean there isn't someone in there. Mm -hmm. And I always encourage families and staff and whomever to do their best to in incorporate them, to touch, you know, a, a nice holding their hand, to talk to them, tell them about the, your day. And it, there might not be any response, but you just don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the brain to me is just, uh, is still as much research that's been done is still uncharted um, territory. Mm -hmm. And we're not even getting into the metaphysical side of things that, you know, what is consciousness oh. <laughs> and what can potentially be there. And that's a whole other podcast episode to get into. That's another, that's another discussion. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But uh, it's a really good point. And, you know, you talk to people, these are conversations I've had actually with some of my friends about, um, would you rather have your body go first or your mind go first? And everyone has different components of themselves that they really identify with, which makes it so that they're afraid to lose that thing. Someone who yeah. identifies as being like the intellectual of their family or of their community and feel like that is their biggest contributing factor is terrifying for them to think about losing their mind. Because again, that's what they associate their identity with. Whereas if they are the, you know, strong alpha in their family or, you know, associated through sports and physical activity for so many years of their life, then losing that physical component is terrifying. And it's like, oh, no, no, let me lose my mind before I lose my body because I can't, I can't stand the idea of not being able to do things for myself. And you know, this speaks so much into the mindfulness stuff that you and I have both um, studied in, in separate capacities, but this way that we identify with these external factors, the thoughts and the body are oftentimes, you know, what's talked about inside of uh, yoga and Buddhism of like the, the ego, the non, non self, and that that true self is that component that's underneath that. And that, that no matter what your ailment is, you know, I like to think of it, my way of coping when I work with the children is to say, well, you know, the kids don't have cancer, their bodies have cancer. Their spirit doesn't have cancer. Their playful manner doesn't have cancer. Their body has cancer right now, but that's not who they are. They're not the cancer. They're not the whatever they're going through. Their true self is perfect, beautiful, and whole from start to finish. And if we, like I found for myself going through some of the work that I've gone through with different people, like that has been my big thing to carry through all of this, um, which leads me with the time that we have, I, I do want to touch on, because I find it fascinating, uh, the transition that you made into the equine therapy. So mm -hmm. when did that come about for you doing 
the nursing, which is, you know, a whole realm of caregiving, as we've been talking about in of itself, to something that some might see as very different. But I think we're about to see how much similarities there are between the two. But I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, you'll have to cut me off on this one because I can <laughs> talk about this all day. But anyway, um, I, uh, I've always loved horses from the time I can remember even when I was four years old. Uh, I, I, my dad put me on a horse and I think that was the beginning of, of my love for them. I was never in a position um, like to own horses, but that was always a dream of mine. And uh, probably, I guess about now, 15 years ago, um, my husband and I went on a, a trip and we just had an absolute amazing um, vacation, which included, I mean, anywhere I went, I, there always had to be horses involved. Mm -hmm. And we had the opportunity to, to go riding along the beach and all sorts of things. And anyways, following that, we both said that, um, he had had some horse experience, but we both wanted to get into horsing or, or having horses. So anyways, that led to taking lessons again, you know, some riding lessons and uh, which he needed a lot more than I did. But anyway, um, and, um, and then, you know, it led to that I, I got a horse again and um, and, you know, um, then about 12 years ago, we, or 13 years ago, I guess now, we decided we wanted to, uh, to get a place. And um, by the time we had the place, we had five horses. Mm. <laughs> so we had to find a farm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, and then one day, um, so now I'm, I'm on a farm, uh, which was wonderful, and, and these horses, and it just hit me one day as I was walking around the property that um, I thought there must be some way I can combine my love of horses with my passion for teaching. Mm. And, you know, then that led me on a, on a journey of finding, you know, were there people out there that did that sort of thing? Um, and there are a number of different programs and I chose one, which is a gala and that's the equine, um, assisted growth and learning association. <clears throat> and, um, so that started my journey of learning how to incorporate horses with helping people. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's just been amazing because I've learned so, I mean, in my early years, you know, I would jump on a horse and go riding anywhere. Mm -hmm. I can't really say, I mean, I knew I loved them, but I can't really say I, I, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know that I paid a whole lot of attention to what they were, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. then when I owned them and got to spend more time with them, I started to see what a magnificent beast they are mm -hmm. and the way that they can pick up incongruencies in people is just amazing to me. Um, so if, if, you know, by that, I mean, if you were to come in to, to work with a horse and, and myself and you came in and, and we're all jovial and, and, um, smiles and I'm glad to be here, which many people do. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the horse will pick up that, yeah, that's the outside, but on the inside, you're scared. Mm -hmm. 
And they don't trust that incongruency. It's all about the, the trust factor because we have to remember they're prey, we're predator. So in order for us to be able to work with them, we have to have a trusting relationship. Mm -hmm. when we so that's a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's amazing because, you know, there's a lot of information out there on like therapy dogs and using dogs as a means of um, healing and growth and that kind of stuff. And it's interesting oh, because sure. dogs are the oldest domesticated animal on the planet. Thousands of years ago, humans and canines decided, okay, it's beneficial for us both to work together, which you know, can provide a lot of support in some capacities in that like the dog can sense what exactly you need, but the dog's going to cater to you a lot more than a horse is. Like you're saying, a horse is like, no, I'm calling bullshit on this one. And <laughs> it's because it, it's, it's, a, it's more, it has more of that wild animal drive to it. It's like, no, no, no. If what you're presenting is not truthful, hundred percent truthful, I'm going to be weary. And it's a natural defense for the animal itself. But I think there's also something around like the sheer size of these horses too, oh, sure. in the, the presence that it brings out in you when you're working with them. Like yeah. I, I spent some time in Australia and I was working uh, to try to get some money. I was staying and working on a, an adjustment place and they had a number of horses and they all had completely different tempers personalities and i think this is a big difference for a lot of people who's maybe only experienced horses in like a you know a riding situation on a tour where oh, totally horse, different. yeah they know like they have the blinders on they've walked that same path a million times and all that kind of stuff when you're working with horses that are a little bit more feral it's a whole other game and there was one horse where the owner because uh, the owners would come and check up on their horses, obviously, but the owner would say like, whatever you do, do not back down from my horse. He is going to charge at you. He is going to do all this stuff, but do not back down. But that's easier said than done when you have this massive animal <laughs> galloping towards you, stopping like inches away from your face. And yet through that, there's almost like at one point, I remember doing this, my wife wasn't standing up to him as much, but it came to that he charged right towards me, I stood my ground, he stopped inches towards my face, he gave like a little bit of a snuff. And then there was almost like a nod of respect that happened when I didn't back down. And our working relationship after that was completely different. And that taught me about confidence. I like I walked out of that paddock taller and yeah. feeling more, this sounds kind of uh, silly, but feeling more like a man or whatever that means at that moment. And uh, yeah, so I was wondering, like, what are some of the experiences that you're witnessing and you're seeing? Because you work a lot with first responders with this as well, right? Like people- yeah, first responders and, and um, people with, uh, you know, various, uh, I mean, a common one I'd say, unfortunately, is, is anxiety, lack of confidence, low self-esteem, those sorts of things. Um, you know, one of the best examples I think I can give that really shows what horses will do. I mean, I, I just love the example, what you just shared, what your, your um, experience. But um, when I do this work, as much as possible, the horses are loose so that like they're not haltered. They just are able to do whatever they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a young lady who came and she had worked with me for a few sessions and she was quite, um, this particular day, she seemed quite upset. 
and it appeared, you know, when I was talking to her that um, um, she, she was having difficulty with uh, a person in her life. So sometimes, you know, it depends on the person, but in this case, she was a very visual person as I knew from previous experience with her. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, can you create what this looks like for me? And I've got a bunch of props in my arena. So she pulled out a bunch of things. And while she's putting this together, my two biggest horses, they're big draft horses, they were in the arena and they're loose and they kind of stood a little ways back and we're just watching. So she put this in a, 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 a together using um, pylons and she put them all in a straight line. And at one end, there was the small pylons, which she said were her um, uh, difficulties that she was having this with this person. Then I had a medium sized pylon and she said those were, that was her sort of building up confidence and then two really big pylons she put at the other end of this line. One of them had a red stuffed horse on it, which she said, well, red is the color of love mm. and horse, I love horses. And then the other pylon was this person in her life. So mm. I don't know if you can visualize this long line of pylons, but each of them representing something. So as she's telling me this, I notice that my one big draft horse is walking forward and she proceeded to throw away the self-esteem type pylons. Mm -hmm. And she, the other horse knocked over the pylon with uh, the horse on it, which was her. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, what, um, what do you think's going on here? And I, I recall that she put her head down for about 30 seconds and she looked at me and she said, well, your horse has just trashed my course, <laughs> my, my representation. And I said, yeah, they did, but I wonder why. And then she looked at me and she said, because it's not how I feel. Mm. So I said, well, then why don't you try creating how you feel? So she took everything away. She left the pylon, the big pylon that had been this person and she put the smallest pylon in front of it. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's how I feel. So then we were able to get into a discussion. We got into working with the horses and similar to what you were, uh, the example you were giving there, Jason, um, it was about claiming her territory around the horses. Mm -hmm. So she was working with one of my biggest horses so 1600 pounds worth of horse <laughs> yeah and she was telling that horse where she wanted her mm. you know and and she would i said you have to stake your ground you know and and um and it doesn't take a horse long to figure that out and they do respect you more so it was a very interesting um session and uh i've just never forgotten it because if it it totally showed you know this incongruency mm -hmm. and not being true to yourself um and it, as i tell everyone you can try but you cannot lie to a horse mm -hmm. but you can try <laughs> well it speaks a lot to our like sense of entitlement and again like the ego how we how we want people to perceive us and i know like when I've been around situations with horses and I know some people I've been uh, in some situations doing some of this kind of work that you're describing, not with you, maybe in the future, but with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And there's been, especially in group settings, you know, this is a very natural thing for us to do as human beings, to posture in front of each other, to try to take dominance and, uh, you know, social posturing and, and these hierarchies that we create and all this kind of stuff. And then, like you say, these animals aren't having any of it as a, you know, evolutionary development. They had to learn to see through all this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a reason why I find it fascinating. There's a reason why, you know, a bird will come and land on the shoulder of a, a horse or a cow or something yeah. like that, where I very seldom ever have a bird come and land on my shoulder. And again, it's like, we need to understand that these other animals have not developed the way to communicate the way we have verbally. For them, it's all picking up these other subtleties through body language and all this kind of stuff. And I remember, so I actually have a, a background with riding as well. And I had an early love of horses. And a friend of mine in college had a couple horses and one was as feral of a horse as I've ever come across. And she had had people come in. He was a big guy too. She had had uh, experts come in and try to, you know, get him a little bit more under control, wouldn't have anything of it. And specifically with men, he would not let men on his back whatsoever. Yet my ego self, I was 20 something and, you know, full of gusto and trying to impress this woman and all that kind of stuff try as I might he was not having any I got bucked off many a time and I would just keep going back and I was determined and determined and then I had a conversation with him one time she wasn't looking I turned around I'm like look man you're making me look bad here I'm trying to impress her I've told her that I can ride horses and you're really <laughs> you know we had a heart to heart at this point in time and I turned to her and I said you know I really feel that we need to try this without a saddle I, I don't know what it is, but I feel like we need to try this without a saddle. And she's like, all right, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> so we had a little steps there and I'm slowly getting up onto him. And so far, so good. And I'd never even gotten to this point with him before. He wouldn't sit still when I was even coming near him. And I managed to get on top of him. And we ended up going for an hour and a half ride that day, bareback. My legs were my, I was, I was sore. Let's just say, yeah, I, didn't want, I know, I know. <laughs> I didn't want to ruin the moment here. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Okay. Just, just play it cool, play it cool. But then my cocky self. So I had had that one-on-one -on -one moment with him beforehand. We were able to go on this amazing uh, ride next time. I'm like, Oh yeah, we got this. We're old buddies and stuff now. And I walked up to him cocky as can be hopped up and was off his back in seconds and I was never able to ride him again, except for that one time. And, uh, you know, that that had me reflect a lot on the way I approached the situation the first time versus the uh, times after that. And again, my arrogance going into it, like, oh, yeah, I was the first, you know, man to be able to ride him for that length of time and all this kind of stuff. And as soon as that ego was in, I was never able to ride him again. It's fascinating. <laughs> it they, they are marvelous. I mean, I, I do a session, well, pre-COVID anyways, I did uh, sessions with uh, family physicians and they would come up as a group and, and we would do a whole bunch of awareness and, and different things. Anyways, one session I remember, it's an afternoon, um, this one person was sitting in the chair across from me and he, he sort of, you know, it was ego talking and he was, yeah, I got this and I don't even know why I'm here. And it was that kind of, that's the kind of vibe I was getting from him. Anyways, while we're talking, I noticed one of my horses who's, uh, his name's Gunner. And I saw him out of the corner of my eye and I thought, uh-oh, 
because <laughs> he's my biggest teacher. Um, anyways, he came around behind this person and he, the, the person had his, you know, the baseball cap on backwards mm-hmm. and uh, Gunner stood right behind him. And I said, okay, I'm going to invite you into the first exercise, which is grooming a horse. And if there's a horse that, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of drawn to, you know, just tell me and, and uh, I'll get the equipment. Anyways, as I'm saying that, uh, Gunner walks right up behind this fellow and he flips his hat off of his head. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, you've been chosen. Mm-hmm. So he, he walked away with Gunner and I, you know, he could tell by the walk and everything. Yeah, you know, I've got this. Well, 20 minutes later, he came to me and I said, so what do you think now? And he said, I have learned I need to walk with people, not in front of them. Hmm. And that's and I thought if that's what your takeaway is today, my job's done because mm-hmm. he had a he had a lesson in humility. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Yeah. No, they're, they're amazing what they pick up and they're amazing what I can truthfully say in the oh, eight, nine years that I've been doing equine work now, um, I can truthfully say I do not come out away from a session and not go, wow, I didn't see that, uh, you know, coming up today. Mm-hmm. So they're it, amazing. It ties in full circle. I was thinking, you know, we started this conversation and in, in with nursing and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that you and I had talked about before we actually hit the record button was, you know, uh, these essential frontline workers and certain mentalities. And you had said, you know, it's interesting, but oftentimes nurses and police officers tend to get along because there's this connection that they can tap into with seeing people when they are maybe not at their best and the stress levels. And it's true. When I look at um, the clients that I typically work with, I get a lot of nurses, first responders. So police officers, firefighters, um, teachers, and that like that makes up the, the demographic makes up the majority of, which is, you know, interesting when you think of the differences that these jobs are doing. But I think of the work that I've done with police officers in the past, and I've gone in and I've worked with specific groups, uh, rolling out different programs and all this. And I remember when uh, the Road to Mental Readiness kind of launched out, I sat in with a group and we were talking about, for the for, interestingly enough, for the first time with these police officers, some common language about how they're feeling and what their mental states are like and all this kind of stuff. Yet there was so much ego, specifically with the group I was working with, it was all sergeants and higher up people, um, that the idea of talking about their feelings was was silly. And there was a lot of people that were still from that old school mentality of, you know, we are expected to be stronger because we deal with more difficult things. So they didn't even let themselves feel vulnerable. And, uh, you know, there was all these conversations throughout that session about, okay, well, what would it look like if you were feeling vulnerable? And they talked about, well, you know, maybe it can look like working even harder if you're at a state of uh, possible burnout and all this. But the first time that I'd seen interactions with um, horses and people doing that interaction was with the group of police officers. And again, like you say, that humbling attitude because they didn't know how to verbalize what they were going through and the pain that they had gone through and all this kind of stuff. It was a perfect bridge specifically 
for this niche of people that just never developed language to ask for help, never developed language to speak about their pains, their traumas. And because it's so niche, like this is why we talked about how nurses and uh, police officers may get along because often the reason why they don't develop this language because they feel like nobody else is going to get it. If I start explaining the stuff that I've gone through today, you know, the way I was treated, the way, you know, responding to a call, sometimes people are like, you know what? No, don't tell me. I don't want to hear about, you know, who you picked up on the side of the highway or any of that kind of stuff. It makes me feel depressed. It makes me feel sad. So sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just like, fine, it's better if I just hold all this, put it on my shoulders and don't speak it. Well, now here's a model where you don't have to. These horses don't care what words you are speaking. They don't care about the stories or anything like that. This is dealing with or letting some of this stuff come out that's been there potentially for years in a very unique and new way. So it's really fascinating. And I think there's going to be a lot more of this coming on the uh, coming on the backside of, of COVID because we talked about, you know, this isn't new stuff, but it is amplified right now. And I think, you know, people are going to be looking for new ways to deal with things to express themselves. And uh, so with that, if somebody is looking for, you know, ways to find this kind of work near them or to find you, like, what are some key searches? What are things that people can look for? Um, Well, that's the question. Actually, I I ask people that um, find me. Mm. And typically, uh, you know, it starts with the Google search and it could, you put in words like um, uh, equine assisted or horse assisted learning or therapy, those types of words. Um, You can go to, uh, people can go to the Agala um, Association Mm. and they have um they have a uh, on their website it shows um you can find a person near you that does that kind of work mm-hmm. um but i think for the most for most people it seems to come up very quickly now because it is in demand um it comes up very quickly if you simply put in you know help with horses mm-hmm. Um, I try different combinations to see what is coming up. And, and as I say, I ask my own clients, but it's getting easier to find. Let's put it that way. And you're, you're, and of course, they can always call me. You're based out of Rockwood, Ontario, right? Rockwood. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I, I just, uh, just last week, um, I had a call from a chap in um, Oakville he was calling me to get if if I could find out who could help um, the do- his niece essentially who is in England. Mm. <laughs> so you know it's it's uh, it's getting more and more known, mm-hmm. and um, which I'm I'm thrilled about. And um, so I don't think it would be that hard to to find now. But what you really like about this industry too, from the people that I've worked with and and uh talked to is it's also providing a space i know that there's a lot of in certain industries like retired racehorses or even maybe horses who have been injured and can't uh, be at the same capacity of riding and all this kind of stuff they are still beautiful knowledgeable amazing creatures and so what i'm seeing with this industry too is there are horses that can't be ridden anymore which yeah. people maybe would have like just disregarded 
um, after that. But now really seeing a niche of like, no, that deeper spiritual teacher is still there, even if they have a limp, even if, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's also providing an amazing, um, uh, amazing space for these beautiful animals that we once just saw, like you said, like just saw as a, an object that you ride. Yeah. And it's so much more than that, which is amazing. No, and that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, virtually not a lot of time goes by. Like I say, a few times a month, I'll get an email from someone saying, you know, I've, I've got this lovely horse. He can't be ridden anymore. Um, I know the work that that I do and, you know, for, for the way that I do the second work, it, it doesn't involve riding and that's what he needs. It would be a second job for him. Mm. And so, I mean, there's great opportunities for those types of horses because, I mean, people used to get a confused, um, like equine assisted. Um, when I first started, I can remember people said, oh, you, you, you do that, the therapeutic riding. And that is not this. Mm. That's a whole different category and there is riding involved. And, um, but for the therapy or, or learning that's done on the ground, it's a great opportunity for some wonderful horses that still have a lot to give, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a good way. And what I do for people is they'll contact me. And I mean, I would love to take all the horses, but obviously I can't. And my husband, I don't think would be happy, but um, I can connect them with the people that are doing, you know, this work and uh, see if they need some horses. So it's, it's, you know, it can, it can be a wonderful opportunity for them. Beautiful. So to kind of just wrap us up here, because time has definitely flown by rather quickly. Yes. Um, to go briefly back to the nursing thing, if there was going to be one, or maybe this is way too much to put out there, but something that uh, from a nurse's perspective, that if people out there would just take into consideration or if they only knew um, would benefit, what's a message from a nurse's perspective that they would just want to get into the world for everyone who's going to be interacting with nurses and uh, caregivers in the future, what's a good message to put out there for the average listener? <laughs> right? <laughs> Anne's looking at me right now like, Jason, what are you doing to me? Oh my God. <laughs> um, okay, one thing that we, we talked about is just remembering again that they are people too and that they have good yeah. days, they have bad days, they have family troubles and all that kind of stuff. And they're trying their best for you, but remember that they're human as well. But are there other, anything else that you want to add to that? I think the reaching out, you know, like we typically, I don't think reach out enough to, to our colleagues because we think, well, they've got more on their plate than I do, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they don't, but we really do need to, to reach out to each other. And, um, uh, you know, so that we have that uh, transparency and that dialogue I think that, um, you know, what worked for me was also um, developing my self-awareness of how I was feeling about things. And, you know, I, I did I always have the passion that uh, I started off with and recognizing, you know, when it's time to move on to something else, not necessarily, you know, I'm not saying out of nursing, I'm just saying to a different area, perhaps, mm -hmm. because sometimes we get that I've got to manage this kind of attitude and no matter what I'm going to stick it out and that's not all that's doing a disservice not only to your patients but you know also to yourself yeah that's a really that's a really broad um, big point because 
not only is it getting different experiences and learning from different people, different patients, and really honing in what uh, really fuels you, but it could be that thing that when that feeling of burnout is coming about, like what is even asking yourself, like what is the thing that is bringing me to that point? Is it that I need a different environment in general? Is it that I need a different style of, and you know, sometimes from people that I've talked to, it's also based on what's happening in your life. If you just lost someone in your family, uh, maybe you went through palliative care for your own parent or something along those lines, then making that recognition that, you know what, I don't think I can be in this line of work right now. I can't be in palliative care. Can I switch to something else? Or if you had just lost a child in your family, like, you know what, I can't work at SickKids right now because I'm too reminded. So really being kind to yourself is actually a really great <laughs> takeaway there as well. No, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, when you, when you ask your, you know, maybe I can't do this right now and that's okay. You'll maybe be able to do it later, mm -hmm. you know, but we put an awful lot of pressure on ourselves to be all things to all people. And um, I think it comes back to really being compassionate and, um, and knowing yourself. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this. Uh, and I look forward to when people can be in person once again and coming out and uh, checking out your farm and everything. But uh, yeah, really appreciate your time today and have a fantastic rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much. And I promise I won't put you on Gunner when you come for a visit. <laughs> That's my, my ego now saying like, oh, I got to see who this Gunner is. We shall see. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Higher Potential Living Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Higher Potential Living and the services we offer, please visit www.higherpotentialliving.com. We offer different online courses, in-person courses, mindfulness and meditation retreats, and we have a variety of different coaches that are there to help you with anything that you might be going through. So please check us out. You can also help support the work we do by subscribing to this podcast anywhere you're listening and of course, sharing it and telling your friends all about it. Thank you so much and have a great day.